0: Welcome to the CEC Report for Australia Day, 26th of January 2018. I'm Robert Barwick. I'm joined today by CEC Leader Craig Isherwood. Welcome, Craig. Yeah, thanks, Robbie. In this week's CEC Report, more than 1,000 submissions oppose APRA bail-in bill, banks are structured to fleece customers, break them up, and new evidence of British intelligence running terrorism. Um, Craig, we don't normally do... Three it was, items, but we're doing strange. it today because I felt the first one deserved its own headline.
1: I thought it was Australia Day, that's why you're doing
0: it. Yeah, well, it's <laughs> different, But it's a bit ambitious, so we'll see if we fit them in. If we don't get to the last one properly, we'll follow it up in future weeks where so you can call in and get a free copy of the CEC's...
1: Which a lot of people have been doing lately, Robert, which is good.
0: Yeah, well, we put a lot of effort into it. All our material is written down in here, and so the last one is reported in there in detail as well. But anyway, let's hope we get to it. But the main issue is the headline today is the um, Senate Economics Legislation Committee that is inquiring into the Crisis Resolution Powers Bill for APRA met yesterday and they updated their website to reveal that they actually received more than 1,000 submissions on this bill.
1: I think when they uh, first heard that we were mobilising on this, robbery, they were very, very nervous because they, they rang in yeah. to our office and sort of... Gave us that impression that they were very nervous about us mobilising on this. or we've succeeded with a thousand submissions. Well, they
0: were worried they might get a few hundred, be flooded with a few hundred submissions from yeah. us. Well, they got a thousand, more than a thousand. So, regular viewers of the CEC report contributed to that. Thank you very much. Um, this is big. A one of our people here did a quick um, survey of the um, normal, uh, the other inquiries that this committee conducts. And the average number of submissions that the Senate Economics Committee receives is about 30. 30.
1: And most We've got of those, a, a lot of those are actual government committees. Government yeah, government
0: departments, departments big banks, organisations, not individuals. We've got 1,000 ordinary Australians to participate in this government process. And so therefore, Craig, that's what makes it particularly outrageous that the committee has decided not to hold a public hearing. Hmm. Right? The, the public is very concerned about this bill. Why don't they want to hold a public hearing? It's in keeping with... The way this bill's been treated from the beginning, right, keep it under wraps. They, they hope to sneak it through. Well, we've made that impossible for them to sneak it through. But it's also in keeping with the reason um, Malcolm Turnbull, when he set the terms of reference for the Royal Commission, which is a different inquiry into the banks, he said it can't look at APRA, right? They don't want this subject looked at because, of course, it's too explosive. You know, in every other jurisdiction in the world where bail-in has been legislated, there's been virtually no discussion about it before it went in. We have made that impossible here. Um, I want to give you an example of just how, the, like, where you see from their own words how much they're worried about what the public think. Because APRA made its own submission to this inquiry. And it's in its submission, we'll put the full text on the board, on the screen here, but I'll just read some of the highlights of this paragraph APRA went out of its way to say, nothing we're doing involves deposits, nothing we're doing, right? So um, it says, while the proposed legislation draws on international standards for resolution regimes, these are adopted in a manner that is appropriate for the Australian financial system. And then it says, you know, so we've got uh, we've got provisions that can allow the bail-in of hybrid securities, I'm paraphrasing there, but it does not, and in their submission they underline not, It does not include a statutory power for APRA to write down or convert the interests of other creditors, including depositors. And then later on it says, APRA also notes and fully agrees with the statement in the Financial System Inquiry report that in Australia, deposits should not be included within any such framework and should not be subject to bail-in. So when APRA wrote that, whoever at APRA wrote that, they're thinking of one thing. Themselves. Them- yeah, themselves, their butts, and the public, in, like, as part of knowing that we in the CEC have belled the cat on this issue in Australia going back to 2013 and 2014. Uh, th- there's been more discussion in, ahead of legislation in Australia on bailing than in any other country, and for that reason we've got them worried. However, Craig, you can't take that wording in APRA's submission. And you can't take a letter from a Member of Parliament telling you, the public, we will not bail in deposits. You can't take that as a reassurance. Unless it's in the legislation, it is meaningless. And that's why the CEC put in a supplementary submission to the committee this week, and you can go to the website and see it, we'll publish it in our publication, to specifically provide them our legal analysis that the bill as written does allow for deposits to be bailed in, and it, doesn't, it doesn't, it's not written to say, this is to bail in deposits, it's not that explicit. What they did is they inserted a clause, and the clause is, or any other instrument. And the, the term instrument, by any definition, by the Reserve Bank's definition, by the Accounting Standard Board definition, includes deposits, right? And so by inserting that in there, what they're saying is nothing in this bill excludes the possibility of deposits being bailed in. Mm-hmm. Right? It's, they've done the opposite of what they're saying that they've, they're going to do. Yeah. Just, they've made sure they've passed a bill here that will not stop APRA in the future being able to use its prudential powers to um, bail in deposits, even though this, this bill is not explicitly what that's about. And in that, I'll go back to that statement again. Um, Because what APRA said in its own words, it sort of foreshadows more on this subject. It says, furthermore, while the government has agreed to consider implementation of a framework for additional loss-absorbing capacity for ADIs, i.e. banks, so they're saying, look, we're going to look at how we can have more loss-absorbing capacity beyond just hybrid securities and the things that they've owned up to. Um, So, Craig, here's the thing, when we're having this discussion, we think... our idea of what a banking crisis is, is what happened in 2008. But we know from talking to members of parliament and the people at APRA, they think, oh, a banking crisis in Australia will be one little institution coming to trouble and APRA having the powers to deal with that. Another little institution coming into trouble, APRA having the powers to deal with that. What is really more likely, one little thing happening over here or a full-blown 2008-style crisis?
1: Robbie, when you first started reading that paragraph from APRA, what was was insidious was the fact that here we are, a so-called sovereign nation in the minds of most people being dictated to by, in effect, international banking powers. They are determining these resolution regimes. Now, why are they doing that?
0: And that's in the paragraph ahead of that. That's right. right.
1: Why are they doing that? It's because they know... That it's not going to be one isolated That's bank right. coming right. down. They know this is the, there's a risk of a systemic crisis because they know there is enormous amounts of speculation in the system. They know that they have to have a mechanism to get hold of everyone's deposits in order to not to save the people, but to save their system. And everything is geared towards the stability of the system. Now, if you go back 50, 60 years, everything in the banking legislation was geared geared towards protecting people's deposits. Yeah. But the the banking laws were changed, the Banking Acts were changed to bring in another clause saying, and financial stability of the system. And what you've seen in the last... they're in conflict. And they're in conflict. And what this APRA bill is basically saying, or bringing in now, is the ability to say that the financial stability of the system is more important than people's deposits. Yes. Right? And that is the essence of this problem that we have here. So unless this bill has, first of all, unless it's completely thrown out, that's the best thing that could happen, and you bring in Glass-Steagall which is a complete separation of the necessary commercial banking system, the boring banking system of deposits and normal loans from all the speculative stuff in merchant banking, investment banking, and all the vertical integration, which we'll talk about in a minute, Uh, unless that's brought in, the entire system is at risk. Now, this is the issue that we've brought to the attention of the committee. They all know about it, but the real battle now is going to lie in the members or people are watching this particular show realising the battlegrounds are now shifted are now shifting to their individual members of parliament. Individual members of parliament have no idea that this, or a lot of them don't have any idea, that this battle is actually taking place. But they all have to vote on this. That's right, they have to vote on the bill. So that's where the battleground has shifted to. I mean, they're not going to hold public hearings because they're terrified that the quality of the submissions that have been put up on the website, their own committee's website, has made it very clear. One, that APRA is not qualified and not trustworthy to handle these sorts of powers. Two, They're not needed in the first place if you actually guarantee deposits. But three, what's absolutely stunning and what is terribly frightening to the establishment is that the financial guarantee cannot and will not work and was never designed to work in the first place. So, this idea that is brooked by the politicians that somehow your $250,000 guarantee of your deposits is there and supposed to work, it was never designed to work, it can't work, it's never been enacted. And that's the fallacy. That's and if they the,
0: held hearings, that's what would come that's up. That's what would come up. That, that would be would on
1: be. the 7.30 report. You know, yeah, all the yeah. major talk shows would be talking about this because this is the lie that's being propagated.
0: Well, so um, if, you're a, if you made a submission, what just one thing to understand is they're not going to put up most of the submissions, but they are going to put up everyone's name who made a submission. So your name will be up there. If you want your actual submission put up, call the committee and tell them that you're not happy with your, your submission not being put up. Ask them to put it up. But more importantly, keep working with the CEC to make sure you take our analysis to all members of parliament and senators, not just the committee, all members of parliament and senators, because they all have to get it in there and vote on it at a certain point. Let's take a break. When we come back we'll talk more about Glass-Steagall welcome back to the CEC report banks are structured to fleece customers break them up now craig i think there's um, three types of people in the world there'd be the vast majority who wouldn't know what glass eagle is so we'll put them aside there's the people who do know what glass eagle is the majority of whom are absolutely for it and I mean the majority, 99.999%, and there's a 0.00001% of bankers and corrupt politicians at their behest who know about it and, of course, oppose it because it is the sheriff coming to get them, right? That's how they see it. Um, But I want to talk about that second group because what's happened is everyone who pays attention to banking, the banking system, and especially the banking issues in Australia where there's a real a growing uproar, right? what you see is this inevitable thing where they start talking in terms of restructuring banking along the lines of Glass-Steagall, whether they refer to Glass-Steagall specifically or not. Right? They start to talk in terms of, we need some kind of separation to protect people. And so the latest of that is ASIC. Now ASIC is the securities regulator, the investments regulator, not the bank regulator, Australian Securities Investment Commission. And this week, they produced a report on the financial advice scandals in the banks that a lot of australians thousands and thousands hundreds tens hundreds of thousands of australians have been victims of this financial advice scandal and that report was quite explosive because they sheeted home most of the blame to the structure of the banks i.e their vertical integration so just explain what that boring term means for the viewer
1: it means robbie that you've got things like insurance companies uh, investment banks merchant banks normal banks all in the one house. So yep. you might have had the experience when you go to a bank teller and they say, Oh, how is your insurance? Would you like to buy housing insurance? Would you like to buy life insurance? Across, well, you just want to go and put some money in the yeah. bank. You get asked, <laughs> Do you want to buy life insurance, right? Yeah. Because they're selling a product on behalf of their bank's life insurance company. Because the bank has a life insurance company. That's right? right. That's vertical integration. And the point is with Glass Steagall, and this is what Franklin Roosevelt out, outlawed in the 1933s under the Glass Steagall Act. Banks can't do that,
0: and he outlawed it, partly for a number of reasons, but partly for the same reason that Asset commented on it now, because in they did this commission, this inquiry in 1933, called led by this New York lawyer Ferdinand Pecora, the Pecora Inquiry. Mm-hmm. And they showed how the banks had used that structure to rip off millions of people. Yeah,
1: because Rob, it's not just uh, insurance policies; they, they can be quite useful, and you know, sometimes they could be a useful service. But you're talking about other things, selling products like bonds, then yeah. you know, they might be really, you know, investment products. Investment in products, yeah. which may not be so, uh, you know, like some of these structured funds that have gone broke, like uh, managed forestry products and stuff. Well,
0: let's let's look at some of the, um, uh, the this the Australian on the 25th of January yesterday. This is their report on ASIC's report. ASIC found found more than two-thirds of all customers, two-thirds, were shunted into financial products owned by the parent bank. This was despite the bank's approved product lists, which dictate what products advisors are allowed to recommend, containing an average 80% of products sourced from other companies. But the the advisors weren't doing that. Why? Because they they don't get a commission from those other companies, they get a commission from their own bank, right? And it's products like you said, that um, you know, whether it's superannuation or investment products, etc. Um, quote, there was a clear, this is ASIC now, there was a clear weighting in the products recommended by advisors towards in-house products, ASIC said. Conflicts of interest are inherent in vertically integrated firms and these firms still need to, manage, to properly manage conflicts of interest in their advisory arms and ensure good quality advice. And so in response to this, the Greens... Party finance spokesman, Senator Peter Bush, Wish Wilson, said the asset report vindicated concerns about the dangers of vertical integration in the banking system. Quote, This needs to be one of the core issues the Royal Commission has to look at, and the Commissioner shouldn't be afraid of recommending breaking up existing vertical integration within the big banks, Senator Wish Wilson said. Well, what is breaking up vertical integration? Well, that is Glass
1: Steagall, Robin. We've been talking about this now for years and campaigning for years. It's the same policy. Unless you have a policy of separating out the necessary and boring banking that people need for, and then the economy needs to support the economy and from all the high-risk products that you've seen collapse. You've seen people lose their shirts over, yep. right? If people want to get involved in that stuff, fine. But you don't have that sold by the normal banking system under the, the sort of like the legitimacy or the safety of what's perceived to be a normal safe. People need to know system. when they
0: go into a commercial bank, they are 100% secure. It's pro- it's protected by the government, and if they want to be studious with their money, that's where you go.
1: And also, if they want to take risks. Go al- somewhere else. Also, the important thing is the bank has to be seen to be looking after their customers' interests first and foremost, not their shareholders and not their investors. Yes. So when you've got a merchant bank and investors involved, right, you've got a conflict interest straight away, that the bank immediately. Right is going to be looking after their investors and their shareholders first and foremost, and what and that's what you've seen with all the, a lot of these uh, a lot of these uh, products is they 're looking for high risk high returns for the bank 's profits
0: and as we mentioned last week, Craig back to my original point um, you know senator uh, not Senator Kate Carnell, the small business and family enterprise ombudsman, you know she is leveling intense criticism at the banks for their treatment of those types of customers right um, the banks have been allowed to go rogue. Um, speculate like crazy in the property bubble, which is setting Australia up for a crash because they're doing it, right? APRA has allowed them to do it. And ASIC, I want to make a comment about ASIC. This is excellent from ASIC that they've done this. Um, But there are plenty of people out there that have been burned by, under ASIC's watch as well. The, the, The former chairman of ASIC, Greg Medcraft, left in November on his way out. He gave a warning about these hybrid securities that we've repeated here, that $43 billion worth have been sold to you know, half a million unsuspecting mum and dad investors these in Australia. Are, these are
1: securities, Robbie, that if the yep. banks go down and get bailed in or they get you know, basically converted to shares, people don't realise that this is going on. And they he
0: criticised APRA for allowing the banks to sell them to those investors. So this was, it was very good that he did that. But where's ASIC been all these years? ASIC, Craig, to me, is starting to behave like a regulator who knows that the uh, products that they've allowed to be sold... Could soon blow up, and they want to be seen to be doing the right thing now,
1: right? Yep.
0: Because well, they are
1: blowing up in other places around the world. No, but that's exa- the point. Exactly,
0: exactly. So that's why sometimes you, you get this kind of common sense from them. Anyway, um, people are coming around to the Glass Eagle solution. Let's take a break and we'll talk. Change the subject onto terrorism. <music> Welcome back to the CEC report. Finally. New evidence of British intelligence running terrorism. And I thought about making that headline, more evidence of British intelligence running terrorism, because the evidence is growing. But the new evidence comes from um, Ireland, the Republic of Ireland, Craig, like most countries, including Australia, has a 30-year rule on its state papers. In Australia, the Cabinet papers are released after 30 years. So... On the 29th of December, Ireland re- released these papers under its 30-year rule from 1987. And included in those papers was a lot to do with the terrorism troubles in Ireland in the 1970s and the 1980s, right? Um, of course, it's related to the IRA, etc. But this particular group of papers didn't, wasn't so much about the IRA. There's a loyalist terrorist group called the Ulster Volunteer Force. And I must say, from here in Australia, you never heard much about the loyalist, the pro-British terrorists. You always heard about the IRA. This loyalist terrorist group, though, was pretty deadly, and they, they committed terrorist attacks. In those papers, they had a letter to the Irish government where they made quite a, ser- a series of quite extraordinary confessions. And the main one was th- they worked with MI5. Mm. And what they did was orchestrated by MI5. So one of the things they confessed to was that they, MI5, had asked them to assassinate the former Irish Prime Minister. So this was in 1985, the Irish Prime Ministers, the, um, the, the leader of the opposition then was a Prime Minister, was Charles, uh, I'm guessing you pronounce it, Hoffie. Um So he had been the Prime Minister twice, he was then the leader of the opposition, and he became Prime Minister again a few years later. But in, in 1985, he was leader of the opposition. He was the head of the Fianna Fáil party. He was perceived in London as pursuing a tougher line on nationalist and Republican issues. And the UVF letter said, MI5 approached us and said, you should assassinate this guy. And they gave us all the information about his his, um, movements and whereabouts to do it. They, though, refused um, because they said, although we don't like you, the Irish government, we're not going to carry out work for the dirty tricks department of the British. And um, there might be an explanation for that reference to the Dirty Tricks Department of the British because the other thing that the UVF confessed is a terrorist attack they did commit in 1975 was they had killed three members of a Irish band called the Miami Show Band. And what was interesting about this band was it was non-sectarian. So there were Protestants and Catholics in this cabaret band and they used to go around Ireland playing gigs showing everyone that Protestants and Catholics could get on. This is in 1975. And going back to Dublin one night from a gig, they'd been stopped at a roadblock, which they thought was a British military one. It wasn't, it was a fake one, manned by this Ulster volunteer force. These these UVF guys tried to put um, explosives onto their bus, but the explosives detonated before they could do it. And when that happened, everything just went to hell. The UVF guys opened fire and shot the band members. And they killed, they shot all of them. Mm. Three of them died. Two of them were left for dead, but they survived. Um, The UVF revealed in this letter 12 years later that MI5 had given them the detonators for those explosives. But, this is a reference to the dirty tricks section, I I suspect, MI5 had set the detonators to explode early because they were hoping to kill them all. The UVF guys and the Miami show band, right? Um, so this is this is what comes out, has come out in these letters. Now, why do we say more evidence? Well, as regular long-term viewers of the show would know, the CEC has done a lot of work with this. You can you can um, there's a big feature in this week's alert service. So if you if you want to know more about this subject, call in and get a copy of this. It's there's an article about this, and there's also the Ar- Australian Armanac Act section goes through a lot of this history about Ireland and British terrorism in Ireland. But the, the recent wave of terrorism, we've seen the hand of MI5 in, in as well. Um, they have a, what they call a covenant of security with Islamist terrorists who live in the UK that they can live there as long as they don't commit terrorist attacks in the UK and they do them abroad, but they can do them abroad and MI5 yeah, helps them. People
1: find that pretty astonishing, really, Robbie, because people think that MI5, MI6, particularly MI5 in terms of domestic, are looking after the interests of the people. But see, that's the fallacy.
0: Who are they looking after? These They're children? looking
1: after the establishment, the City of London in particular, and the Crown. Now we might—that's might, people might find that shocking—but we we published a pamphlet last year called "Stop MI5, MI6, Sponsored Terror, Sponsored Terrorism," and we went through exactly how this is done, because we were concerned, particularly after the last spate of terrorism in the UK, that this was—you know—this is this was going to come down and really hit hard here in Australia. And we've seen isolated incidents of one-off sort of things here, but. This is how terrorism is used, terrorism is used to control a population. Because, con- because it becomes the pretext for more power for the state. For so the state. So they pass more laws. In fact, if you go back to 2001, have a look at the raft of terrorism laws that were brought in under John Howard. What? To control the population against? Economic
0: collapse. Craig, and um, that's all we've got time for this subject, but I will refer back to a, an episode we did at four weeks ago on the Mont Society and Thatcherism. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, people have to understand, it's Thatcher, the revolution she ran was so brutal in economic terms, she was helped by this terrorism crisis at the time because that allowed her to seize the powers that she did to r- run through both kind of policies. Anyway, that's all we've got time for. Call in and get a copy of this and keep participating in the CEC's mobilisation. Take our material to your Member of Parliament before they vote on this bill. Thanks, Craig. Thanks, Robert. Thanks for tuning in.